In the name of the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. We are still in chapter 22 of Second Samuel. And you guys, if you remember, chapter 22 is simply a praise that David the prophet is offering to God. And we said this chapter is very similar to Psalm 18. If you guys remember the breakdown of the chapter, we said verse, four to, verse 2 to verse 4 were just a, a proclamation. He's making an announcement. He says, I want to talk about my life with God. From verse 5 to verse 7, he's kind of summarizing why he wants to make an announcement on what's coming up. And then from 8 to 31, he's kind of almost doing a flashback to some of the big events in his life. And then from verse, four, from verse uh, 32 to 46, he's reporting some of the things that God has done in his life. And then from verse 47 to 50, he is vowing to be with God. And in verse 51, he's praising God. So if you guys remember, last time we stopped around verse 23. So we are, in the, we are in the section where he is kind of going flashback to what God has done in his life. Last time, just if you recall, I was telling you there's a difference between being blameless and being sinless. So David the prophet, he tells God, I was blameless in your eyes. And blameless, we said, it was a result not because David was not sinning, but the fact that every time he sinned, he repented. Every time he sinned, he offered sacrifice. So the fact that he was, he was repentant and he offered sacrifice, he became blameless. Just like us, when we go for confession, we become blameless. So when we stand in front of God, God sees us pure and sees us that we are his children. Uh, so for verse 23, it says, For all your judgments were before me. And as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. So the beautiful thing about actual repentance is that it wipes away all your disobedience. So he's telling God, I did not depart from them, even though David did depart from the commandments of God. But he realizes that in the eyes of God, he is so pure now because he repented and he offered, uh, he offered sacrifices, he followed the rituals. So at this point, he knows that God sees him as somebody who did not depart from them. Can you imagine? When you repent and when we go confess our sins, we completely become blameless. Such a wonderful gift that God has given us. I think people struggle a lot to forgive others. And sometimes people struggle to forgive themselves. And we have seen this, and this is common among females more than males even, that a lot of times uh, people struggle to forgive their sins, their own sins, even when they go and repent. But David the prophet says, it's all forgiven. Verse 24 says, I was so blameless before him, I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from iniquity. Again, David the prophet, he realized that there are some times in his life where he sent and repented, yes, but also sometimes he did follow the commandments. He did refuse, for example, to kill Saul when he had a chance to. He did, he did, did not want to punish Shemai, the son of Gera, when he insulted him. If you guys remember, David did, this is specifically the act of, of mercy toward Shemai because he said, I wanted to have favor from God. And there's a verse in Psalm 66, it says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. But certainly God heard me. 
He has attended to the voice of my prayers. So what is this verse saying? It says, if I am constantly focused on my iniquity, if I have not repented of my iniquity, what happens? The Lord will not hear. But certainly God has heard me. Why did God hear David? Because he repented and he became blameless and he was so close to the commandments, he tried to follow them. At the end of his life, he said, God heard me. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness and according to my cleanness in his eyes. So the Lord rewarded David according to what? To how God sees David. Not how David sees himself. Not how David sees himself. A lot of times when we see ourselves, we see ourselves in extremes. Either I see myself the top of the world or I see myself the lowest of the world. And these two extremes are simply a reflection of pride. But in the life of David, he says, God rewarded me according to how I am in his eyes. You know, uh, one of the best imagery is parents. No matter how difficult the child is, they still see their child as a beautiful blessing and a wonder of a child. Even though they pay, them, they pay for them, they are worried about them, the child can sometimes yell at his parents or her parents, they can scream, they can disobey, they can do all this stuff, but at the end of the day, it's my child. And somehow David started to have a, a glimpse of what is the relationship of adoption that he can have with God. I want to understand how God sees me. A lot of times, by the way, in our life, we're more motivated by encouragement than by rebuke. Like if I know I'm good at something and people are encouraging me, I will continue to grow in it. But if every time people rebuke me and what I'm doing, I become more nervous, more anxious, more worried, and creativity kind of it slows down. So here he says, God have looked at my righteousness according to my cleanness in his eyes. God who knows everything, he saw David pure. Look at verse 26, he says, With the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. David knew the heart of God, and he knew that when he offered mercies, God will give him mercy. And I'll tell you guys something kind of off topic, but unfortunately in our nowadays, our threshold for mercy is very high. For me to have mercy on somebody, it requires a lot of work. Even to help somebody, like any charity or any organization that wants to help people, they have to highlight very dramatic pictures and very sad stories, and they have to play on the emotional part so they can get people to have mercy. But if I understand the core of this commandment is any opportunity for me to have mercy is an opportunity for God to have mercy on me. Then I will not waste a chance of having mercy on people. 
those who are upset with me, those who have done me wrong, I will forgive them today. Those who have been talking bad, bad about me today, I will forgive them. Those who are struggling and need help without them asking, I will go help. Because it's an opportunity for me to enjoy the mercies of God. An opportunity for me to, to enjoy the mercies of God. And he, said, he told him, with the blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. So we must not underestimate the work of repentance. Because if I want God to treat me in a blameless way, in a, in a pure way, I have to be pure. But don't underestimate the fact that constant repentance is required. He's telling him, with the pure, you will show yourself pure. And with the devious, you will show yourself shrewd. So with the pure, God obviously will deal with his own nature with, his puri with the purity of the person. He says with the devious, those who are wicked, God will be shrewd with them. Like if you guys remember the story of Pharaoh, for example, what did God do? He pulled his hands from them, from the heart of Pharaoh. Because he continued to be wicked, continued to be sinful. Sometimes, for example, when people continue to live in their wickedness, God will send them a clear warning, a clear message, a shrewd message. God is looking here, by the way, not for the work itself, but for the intention of the person. Purity. Is your intention from inside pure or not? And how do you know if the intention is pure? If you're intending to be pure, the intention is pure. Is that clear? If, if my goal to do an action, I want to do it, with the intention for the sake of God or for a pure intention, then that intent to have good intent is good intention. Okay? That's why our Lord in Isaiah 58, 6, 7, He talked to people about how their fast was not accepted. He told them, this is not the fast I have chosen. The fast I have chosen is to lose the bonds of the wickedness, to undo the heavy burden, to let the oppressed go free, it's not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring your house the poor who cast out when you see the naked that you cover him. So God is telling them, I'm looking at the purity of the heart and those who have that intention, I will treat them with purity. Those who are, those who are wicked, then God will be shrewd with them, very rough with them, very clear with them. Okay? Be careful because we as people, the Bible says, even if we've done all righteousness, we, we call ourselves non-profitable servants. So the fact that God, even if we've done all righteousness, we still are wicked and we still are sinful. So the fact that God treats us with purity and, and good righteousness and, all, and, 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 and mercy to us, this is all things that we don't deserve. All His act of love toward us is action from His own goodness. So here... This verse says, with the pure, he'll become pure. With the wicked, he'll be shrewd. So the response from God depends on my intention. You will save the humble people, but the eyes are on the haughty that you might bring them down. God loves the humble people. He loves the humble church. 
He loves humble Israel. Everything he chooses is humble. The manger is humble. Everything he chooses is humble. I remember even somebody was telling me when uh, St. Mary appeared in the church, in the church in St. Damiana in Egypt, in, the, in an area called Baba Dublo, was actually a very small church in Chobra. And a lot of people tended to, a lot of people tended to uh, go to all the big churches, and very few people would be actually in that church. And the Virgin picked one of the most humble, unknown churches to actually appear in it. So God really looks at the humble. I want to, if you want to, if you're taking notes, maybe you can take notes right now. Because the Bible says here, but your eyes are on the haughty that you might bring them down. I was looking at this and then I found out uh, a ladder of pride. Twelve progression, twelve steps that could lead a person to live a, a prideful life. So I want to just kind of mention it quickly so it kind of helps us to understand when we see the little indication of us being prideful, then we become careful. The first step of the ladder is curiosity. A lot of times, curiosity in our life, especially we call it uncaring curiosity. Like you don't really care about people. Like remember the story of the man born blind? What happened? People, the disciples told Jesus, who sinned, him or his parents? They don't care about the poor guy blind. They're not asking Jesus to heal him. They're just curious. This curiosity, which is something that we, something God put inside of us to benefit us, if we use it just to just be curious and know information that not important for us, it could be a first step of a prideful life. Could be a first step of a prideful life. Even when I go visit people, I have to keep my eyes not looking what's pe what do people have in their homes. So I don't, I don't ha have any other thoughts except focusing on God. When people sit together, all what they care about is gossip and drama and all this stuff. This is a first step of, of, uh, of, of pride. And a lot of time people ask a question, be like, why are you asking? I'm just curious. What way would that benefit you? I'm just curious. It's a sense of entitlement when I'm asking this, something that does not, I do not care about and I grow in. The second step is humor. So obviously, there's good humor, and there's a humor where it reflects pride, where I am making fun of people, sarcastic, what about people, what people are doing constantly, and even though it comes out as fun, but it could eventually reflect that I see myself better than the person in front of me. Whereas if the person in front of me does not really know the norms and the etiquettes and I'm making fun of them all the time. And that becomes a way of expressing pride in different situation. The third step, so just follow with me, the first one is curiosity, the second one is humor, the third one is instability or somebody who's moody. A lot of times when I start kind of, it's all becoming more about me. Um, unstable in my emotions and unstable in dealing with people. Quite sometimes it's a reflection of pride because 
All what I'm trying to deal with is a certain environment that I'm comfortable with, and I want people to treat me in a certain way. And if I don't get that, I don't receive that, then I become very moody. And I'm uncomfortable when I'm in a places where I need to learn and I need to develop. And stability also comes from the fact that humility, by the way, re results in a stability in emotions. Maturity is a stability in emotions. I'm able to manage my emotions because my goals have become clear and where I'm going have become clear. When I don't have clear goals, when I'm not able to manage my emotions, anything that comes from outside takes a big reactions in my life. So this moodness, this instability, is a third step in pride. The fourth one is boasting. When somebody started obviously showing off. And showing off, by the way, does not have to be by words. A lot of time people show off by action. They show off how they look, they show off they're in social media, they show off they're having, they're having the best time in their life even though they're miserable, they show off how successful they are in their career, they show off whatever it is, they show off re the relationships, they show off the people that are dating, they show whatever, there's so many things people can boast about. Sometimes even people boast about their spiritual life. And they boast about, oh, they are known in the church, they are big servants in the church, they're boasting about things that could be spiritual. All these are signs of a prideful life. The fifth step is isolation. Where people who become prideful, eventually they isolate themselves from the people around them. Because nobody is good enough for me. I find the fault in every person. And I'm judging every person. And I walk in every place and I feel I'm the best person here. And I am in a constant state of just self full of myself. This becomes a, a higher level of walking in the path of pride. Okay? Six is self-conceit. What you start, obviously, thinking after you isolate yourself, what's going to happen automatically once you isolate yourself? You're not getting any feedback from people. You're not interacting with people to get a reaction. If you do something foolish or you are or difficult to work with, so then all of a sudden you start just thinking highly and highly and highly of yourself. So almost a, the description of C.S. Lewis of the hell, how hell looks like, it's just some people who just wants to isolate themselves and thinking they can be better the more they isolate, the more farther they get from people. Self-conceit. Number seven, the seventh step is assumption. You start assuming things about yourself and about people. Self-lying and assumptions are related to pride. I start assuming that people are, uh, people are talking bad about me. People are jealous of me. People envy me. How do you know? Oh, I'm pretty sure. Why? Because they don't like me. Well, maybe they don't like you because you're not nice. Maybe they don't like you because you're prideful. Maybe you're not, they don't like you because you're not easy to work with. Maybe they don't like you because you, you don't let them, give them a chance to talk. 
Maybe they don't like you because you want the attention all on yourself. Assumptions. It's a, it's, it's a form of pride. It's a number seven on the ladder of pride. Okay? I'm sorry I'm talking, I'm spending time on that because I think it's important to know these little, little fine lines of what does pride look like. Because if we watch in the small things, it will help us not to reach the higher levels. Number eight is self-justification. You know, I'll tell you guys something. If you look at the scripture, the holy, the, some of the most righteous people in the scripture, like Daniel the prophet, for example. When a problem happened, and this man prays three times a day, he fasts, he's a good guy, he follows the law, he does everything. What does he do when a problem happens? He gets on his knees and tells God, we have sinned. Nehemiah, a loyal person who works for the king, he cares about Jerusalem. When he wants to rebuild the temple, he gets on his knees and says, we have sinned. When a lot of, when people face tribulation and they start saying, why God is doing this to me? God doesn't exist. God, blah, blah, blah. Self-justification and trying to find excuses is the biggest sign of our arrogance and prideful life. The, the church father teaches us, when tribulations happen in my life, the first thing I do is I get on my knees and I repent. But I haven't done anything wrong. Well, you don't know. You don't know that. You don't know what God is trying to change in you. You don't know what reward God wants you to reach. You don't know what spiritual state God is trying to prepare you for. You don't know. Self-justification can be quite dangerous in life of pride. And by the way, the other extreme is when people cannot forgive themselves like we talked earlier and they feel guilty about everything. Even after they confess and repent, they still feel guilty. And by the way, both of them are a form of pride because when I feel like I feel so, so guilty, it's almost like I feel, how can I make that mistake? Dude, you're weak. You're sinful. You will make mistakes. But the people who are self-conceited, when they sin, they struggle to recover because they think very highly of themselves. And it's not easy for them to repent. Number nine, hypocritical confession. People start claiming things about themselves that is not true. And they started trying to look more ethical than they are. You guys have read the news recently about the crash of one of the cryptocurrency markets, trade markets. And the guy who's in charge of that, of that market, he, he, people, he was talking how ethical the country should be and kind of, you know, talking about all the ethical issues in the country while he was running a fraud and lying and stealing from people. I'm not saying he's prideful, but I'm just giving you an example of how hypocritical confession can be. That I want to confess to everybody that you're morally wrong. 
I live a more, more better moral life than you. And these hypocritical confessions are problems. And this is, by the way, a big issue right now in our society. People are trying in our society to find the problem is in the government. The problem isn't the leaders. The problem isn't here. The pro and how many people are looking inside and saying, well, I am the problem. I need to change. Hypocritical confession. I am the next hero of the world. I have done this and this and this and this. You know, you sit with many people, and when they start talking about their accomplishment in life, people automatically inside their heart shut down. Even though every person enjoys talking about himself or, or herself, but talking about yourself doesn't really get people to be excited as much. People are excited to talk about God and the hope and forgiveness. And the only hero that we have in our life is our Lord Jesus Christ who transforms our life. Number 10 in the ladder of pride is revolt. When people start kind of rebelling against certain behavior, a certain lifestyle. And if, for example, one time I ran across a youth who was struggling with the sin so much that he told me, Abuna, you know what? I came to a conclusion that this is not a sin anymore. Okay. So you're just calling something that is a problem, no problem. It's almost like if you have a disease and say, well, I came to a conclusion cancer is no disease anymore. Well, what's going to happen to you? You're going to die. You're not going to be able to pray. You're not going to be able to walk with God. You start revolting against some basic principles in life. My parents, for example, want me to come back at a certain time. We're trying to put some control. I'd be like, no, I'm going to revolt. Well, revolt itself, you're missing the point of self-discipline and self-humility. And, and obedience is a sign of humility. No matter how, how, how much you've grown and how knowledgeable you are, Humility is important in your life so God can work. A lot of people in their young age, they revolt. Especially when they can have a car and they can drive and they can have independence. They revolt against the system, the norms, even the things they know they are wrong. They revolt. Number 11, they start having freedom to sin. Now once they revolt, everything is okay. I can do whatever sin I want. Why? Because I'm self-conceit. I believe in myself. I'm isolated from the world. I can do anything I want. And then the last one, sin becomes a habit in their life. Without repentance, without change, sin becomes the new norm. Many people have adopted sin in their life and they will defend the sin, they will fight for the sin and if somebody talks to them about sin, they will be angry. Why? Because sin became a habit. And instead of keeping the sinful nature out as an external to us, we have taken it to become part of us. So the 12 steps of pride is curiosity, Human or, humor or sarca sarcasm, 
instability, boasting, isolation, self-conceit, assumption, self-justification, hypocritical confession, revolt, freedom to sin, habits of sin. God looks at a private person and brings them down. He brings them down. He brings them eh, down. Remember a story that uh, Father Matthew the poor said it was quite interesting. He said a rich man came to him and told him, look, even if God wants to make me poor, he won't be able to. Because I have so much success and so much richness that nobody can take it away from me. Can you imagine? See how, how, how pride hit this guy? And then Abuna says the story came after, I forgot the period of time, the children of this man came to the Abuna Mata and asked him, could you please pray for him? Tell him what happened. They told him he got into a very risky deal. He lost all his money and he ran away because obviously in Egypt, if you owe money, they can put you in prison. It's not like America where you can maybe file for bankruptcy or something like that. So he's in danger of prison. Pride can become a problem that can truly keep us blind all our life. People can spend, by the way, all their life in one of the steps I talked about, can spend all their life just curious about other people. And that one step could blind them from everything else. David said to God, for verse 29, For you are my lamb, O Lord, the Lord shall enlighten my darkness. Think about how much darkness are in our life. How much time were you oversleep or overeat? Or you get too angry or judge people or have self-pity or have daydreaming or disobedience or lust? So much darkness inside. And the word of God becomes a lamb to our hearts. Becomes a lamb. What does it mean? It lights in my heart. It says, enough enough of this i was reading a psalm i think a day or two ago a day or two two days ago and one of the verses that caught my eye the psalm was saying god will give the humble the desire of his heart god will give the humble the desire of his heart so if you want god to give you your desire you have to be humble the word of god's constantly lights on our own darkness It wakes us up. It, re it rebukes us. So David the prophet is telling God, God, your word is a lamb to me. So if I am not reading the Bible, I am probably growing in my ladder of pride. Because nothing that shines on my darkness. Nothing that shines on my darkness. It says, for by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. He's telling God, because of you, I can do things that are impossible. I could run against a troop. It's impossible or very difficult for somebody to fight. By my God, I can leap over a wall. Like imagine, you guys remember in the New Testament when St. Peter, at the beginning of his life, he denied our Lord Jesus Christ. Later on in the book of Acts, when they threatened him, they told him, stop preaching the name of the Lord. 
He told them, I must obey God, not man. I must obey God, not man. He learned to jump over wall, a wall of fear. A lot of people are afraid to, to show their Christian identity in schools. The cancel culture that we have right now is a culture of fear. It makes people afraid to express who they are and what they stand for. And what, what David the prophet says, by my God, I can leap over, over a wall. We cannot overcome the fear in schools or the fear in the environment around us by simply just doing it on our own ability. I must have the strength from God himself. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. Look at this here. It says the way of the Lord is perfect. What does it mean the way of the Lord is perfect? I cannot use evil ways to justify something good. I cannot lie, so I could say I'm doing God's will. I cannot cheat. I cannot judge. I cannot deceive my intention to say I'm doing God, God's will. The way of the Lord is perfect. His word is proven. What does it mean his word is proven? So many of the commandments of God are conditional. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Peacemakers are the children of God. Conditional commandments, they are proven. Give the tithe and see what I'm going to do in your life. And that's why right after he says he's a shield to all who trust in him. How many times I was in a, in a situation where I says I will trust in God above all human logic. Above all human logic. I told you guys the story before when we had somebody in the church who just got laid off and he came to my office and he came and he says, Amuna, I want to make a donation to the church. And I told him, he just got laid off. Just hold off until you find a job and then I will take the donation from you. And then his response to me, I'll never forget it. He told me, I have not paid tithe in a while. And I want for the first time in my life to learn how to trust in God. This is a married man who has children. He wants to learn to trust in God. Many people, for example, who are struggling against the sin of lust or pornography, whatever it is, when they start disciplining their life more, for example, they say, if I commit the sin, I will make such and such donation, or I will fast that many days, or I will do this. You'll find that the word of God becomes more proven in the life. Because the grace loves to see us fighting and struggling in our life with God. From verse 32 to 46, David the prophet is talking about the report or the results. After all these flashback, what is the result of all of this? He says, for who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? What is he doing here? It's a profession of faith. He's almost saying the creed that he lives by. Who is God? The Lord. Who is my rock? The Lord. If I come to you and say, 
Who is the source of joy in your life? Who is who, what makes you wake up every morning to keep going on with your day? Oh, I have dreams. Oh, I have ambition. Oh, I want to make more money. Oh, I like, I I'm, I'm wake up, I come to church because I want to meet this girl or I meet this guy. You come up, you wake up in the morning for a different goal. But he says, who is the Lord? Who is God is the Lord? The word, by the way, rock, is very important. Because remember, in the, Old, in the New Testament, our Lord says, if you want to build your house, you build it on the rock. If you want to be saved from the sea, you sit on a high rock. If you want to find your, fight, fight your enemies, you want to be in a rock on the top. The rock is something that you can rely on. You can build in. You can see, have a big view of the whole world. The world can seem under your feet. Who will make me see the world so small? God. Who will make me to build a strong house in the kingdom of heaven? God. God is my Lord. God is my Lord. That's why in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, St. Paul says, And all drank the same spiritual drink. He's talking about Moses when he was in the wilderness, and there was a rock, and Moses hit it, and water came out. He said, For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So who is the rock? Our Lord Jesus Christ himself. When we walk on in our life, and we think about the source of strength in our life. Do we look at God, our rock, or not? God is my strength and my power. And he makes my way perfect. David the prophet is saying that I have realized in my life that God is the one who makes me perfect. You know, like, for example... You struggle so much to fulfill a commandment. And you're trying and you're trying and trying a year after year, a year after you're really trying so hard. And all the day, all of a sudden, that commandment becomes so easy in your life. And then later on, it becomes enjoyable. And then later on, you cannot not follow the commandment. For example, somebody is struggling with listening to bad music. And they struggle, they struggle, they struggle, and then they start learning to replace it with Christian music. And every once in a while, they relapse and listen to bad music again. And then later on, they start listening to hymns. And later on, they, they start enjoying listening to uh, uh, sermons. And later on, they, they look forward to listen to certain Christian music or certain sermons. And later on, when somebody plays bad music, ah, stop this, I can't take it. They go to some of these crazy wedding receptions, be like, I can't, this is too much headache for me. What happened? God made your way perfect. God made your way perfect. By the way, a lot of times, God makes our way perfect. If you guys remember in the visitor of midnight in Luke 11, when I realize that my ability to fulfill the commandments of God is lacking. When I realize I cannot fulfill the commandments of God. I cannot wake up early. I cannot pray. Oh Lord, help me. I need it. I beg you. I want to pray. I want to, my life is running away. 
You're my hope. A lot of times, because in our life, in our studies, in our works, in our promotions, in our driving skills and everything, we're depending so much on ourselves, we try to extract the same thing and do it in our spiritual life. It doesn't work that way. The Lord makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. What, what happens with a deer? The deer what? Runs so quickly. It's so fast. So fast. Okay? And sits me on my high places. He makes me, makes my feet like a feet of a deer. What does that mean? Most of the sins in our life, the best way to do is to run away from them. And remember all the saints, and the, even the scripture, like Joseph the Righteous, for example, when he's in a situation where he was going to commit adultery, what did he do? He ran away. First, David the prophet, he tells him, you made my feet like the feet of a deer. Every time I'm in a situation of a potential sin, you make me run. You make me flee. But not only that, some, some people were saying that the deers tend to eat a lot of like, like uh, maybe small snakes or some of these dead animals that makes them thirsty. So whenever they see water, they run. That's why in, in Psalm 42, 1, it says, As the deer pants for the water, brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. So, what's happening here? He says, it's not only you make me run away from sin, but when I see your water, the water is the word of God, the spirit of God working inside of me, I run. You know, many times, the spirit calls me inside, to sit with God. And the humanity and their laziness, they say no. They say no. And they delay. And they delay. And God says, I make you run. So you need to ask that I could help you to run. That's what's happening with God making my feet as a deer. He says, sets me on my high places. He sets me where? On my high places. This is where God intended for me to view the world and to live. God is the one who makes me realize how small the world is. Like, for example, King Solomon, he realized after he had a thousand women in his life, 600 concubines and 400 women and drinking and partying and, and committing sins left and right. He came at the end and he says, vanity of vanity, all is vanity. That was his high place. What did, what did it take for him to realize vanity of vanity, all is vanity? It took that he committed awful sins. And he's one of the people that people question the salvation of King Solomon. He disobeyed God in so many different ways having horses more than God requested and trying to live a luxurious life. A lot of things he did. Because he realized his high place too late in his life. Too late in his life. Sometime, to be honest with you, I was just telling somebody this the other day. I told them, I wish I would have known the things I know today 20 years ago. There is important things in our life 
that helps us to be on high places. And I'm sure if God yani, gives us life 10, 15 years from today, I'll probably look back and say, I wish I would have known these things I know 10, 15 years from today, 10, 15 years ago. We ask God to teach us. That's why in verse 35, last verse for today, he says, He teaches my hand to make war, and that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You guys know when a father takes his son or his daughter to teach them how to drive? This is exactly what God says. In the old, in the old days, every father would teach his son how to go to war. Because that was common. All, all tribes, everywhere they go to war, they have to protect themselves. So he says, God taught me how to fight. How to fight the devil. He taught me how to fight the devil. How did God teach you how to fight the devil? In many situations, you find people, when we talk about fighting sins, they'll be like, I, know ex I hear this word a lot, I know exactly what I need to do, but I did not do it. Why? Because God taught you. You've experienced it. It has been proven in your life. But maybe what's missing is that I have not cried to the Lord and asked Him to help me to hold my hands. And this is the beauty, by the way, of a life of a person like David the prophet. All what he was concerned with is how God was the hero of his life. How our Lord Jesus Christ was the king of his life. Who is God but the Lord? Who is my rock but the Lord? That's his report of what's happening. And glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.